Today's scripture is from Matthew 3, 1 through 12. Please stand for the reading of God's word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from, for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, does, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, greetings, church. My name is Chad Lewis. I'm a pastor here. And I wanted to share a text message with you with no context and see how powerful it is to your life here. So here's the text message. Can we hang out when you get back in town? Seems pretty germane, right? But when you add some context to it, it can be pregnant with meaning and power. And so this is what the context of this is. In 2005, it was December, and I received this text, opened up my flip phone, saw it for you youngsters. Flip phones were here before touchscreens. Before that, we used telegraphs with Morse code to communicate. But I got that from a young lady named Ginger. That was her name, and it still is today. And kind of the story is, I was in seminary, saw her, and just went, man, there's a pretty girl here in seminary. She probably loves Jesus. And so I, I tried to pursue her. She was dating someone else, but then the opportunity came. And so we, hang, we hung out for a while. We threw Frisbee. I just fell for her pretty quickly. But in her eyes, in her heart, I was just always in the friend zone. And that's what kind of marked my whole dating career quite often. It's like, man, we we really like you. Man, you're great. We love to hang out. And uh, then push towards romantic things, and then there was a pullback. And so we did this for a while, hung out, dated, and then it was clear like she wasn't going to take that next step, and I wanted to marry that girl. And uh, so it became so painful for me that I just I set up some boundaries and just said, hey, either I'm going to have to join a monastery or we just can't hang out. We had some similar friend groups, but we just stopped hanging out, so we weren't going to contact each other. And so I went off to do some music at a few places, went home for the holidays, and then I got this text. And immediately when I got the text, I thought one of three things was true. I thought, 
first of all, which was the most likely possibility. Someone had stolen her phone and was playing a joke on me, so that was it. That was number one. Secondly, I thought, well, she seems like a really, really smart girl, but maybe she's not as smart as I thought she was, and she just didn't know what she was doing. And then the third one, which seemed to be the least likely, was that maybe her heart had changed. And so I came back, we did hang out, we went to Bernheim Forest, walked around, and she revealed that her heart had changed. It's a miraculous story, beautiful story. And uh, six weeks later, engaged, four months later, married, and it did change all of my life. Simple, simple text message with context. And today, we're looking at a message, it's a simple message from John the Baptist as we continue with Matthew. And at face value, it's just like, hey, it's a message, repent. You see this on the billboard sometimes, turn or burn. I don't really like those billboards because it kind of stops short before the beautiful invitation to life with God. But it's, these are, these are uh, messages that without context, without knowing some of the history, they can lose their power. But knowing all of that and through the power of the Holy Spirit, they can have great power and actually radically transform our lives, not just in eternity, but in the here and now. And so in your outline, you'll see, as we're looking at Matthew 5, we're going to see, just briefly, look at the man who was John the Baptist, look at the mission, what was his calling, what was he called to, and then we're going to camp out on his message. What is the message, and how does it apply to our lives here in 2019? So as we've been looking through Matthew, we see that he's, he's kind of an unsentimental writer. He's just pushing forward with the facts. He skips uh, just details of Jesus's younger life. He skips details about John the Baptist's uh, birth story. You can find those in Luke. And even but John the Baptist's message, you can find a lot more detail in Luke and in John. But here in this, this concise account that, that Matthew has as he's eager to get to the life and ministry of Jesus, the message is amazingly powerful. So let's look at who he is first. We know that he's related to Jesus and all four gospel accounts show him as a pushing forward, showing, preparing the way for the Messiah that had been promised long ago. And the important things to remember, and I'll mention it several times this morning, when we look at this in the context, we remember that the Old Testament had many, many prophets. There were prophecies about the coming Messiah, the coming King. King David was spoken to by God that there would be a one who would be on your throne as an eternal heir. And that promise was given 1,000 B.C., and even in some of the Psalms, Psalm 22 and other Psalms, there are just explicit prophecies about what would happen in the crucifixion with Jesus. We see in Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, the suffering servant. We see the prophecy that we'll look at today. And then we see with Jeremiah, 500 B.C.-ish. And then Malachi. Malachi hits 400 B.C. And at Malachi, there's this prophecy. It's a small one. It's just four chapters long. And then at that point, the Old Testament canon ends. And after that, there are 400 years of silence. So all this promising, all this looking forward, and then boom, it seems that the Holy Spirit is withdrawn from Israel, and it's nothing. They still have the scriptures, they study the scriptures, they still have religious leaders, the temple has been reestablished, but everything's gone back into the old mode of being, where even the leaders are not pointing to the true God. They're just doing the external actions, and we'll see a lot of that opposition. And so we see in verse 1, in those days, remember in the context, 400 years of silence. 
The word was not coming forth upon them until now. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. As he's preaching, there's great power going forth. As he's preaching, people are affected by the message. And so he's, he's preaching, he's going all around and people are just coming and coming. And he's saying things and it's sparking things in the people's memory as they know the Old Testament scriptures that there was one promise to come and give a new covenant, to give a new heart. There would be a day of the visitation of the Lord. And all throughout this day is, is looked forward and the people expect it. But then in this time of silence and just the, the ordinary nature of all the activities that go on in the temple, they'd lost hope in many ways, in many ways. We see John preaching in the wilderness and that there's a lot of allusion to that in the Old Testament, the people wandering. We see quite often prophets were not accepted because their messages were against the wicked kings and the evil in the land. And so they were driven out to the wilderness. And so we see that as part of John's ministry. Uh, we also see that this may become a new style as sojourn. This is what John wore, verse four. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his fo food was locusts and wild honey. And back in my youth, I had a Michael Jordan jersey because I wanted to identify with the bulls and I wanted to be a, a baller. But we see John the Baptist, he's identifying with Elijah. And we see even that description of Elijah in the Old Testament. So just briefly, Matthew doesn't give us much about John. We see that he's in the wilderness. He's proclaiming this message. He is a forerunner of Christ. And he's preaching with power. And people are being affected. Poor man's clothes, poor man's diet. There's this picture that he has removed himself from the idolatrous ways of Israel. And he's, he's showing them physically and with his message that God is enough. God is, is the greatest thing in all the universe. He is what sustains us. And this is what we're called to live for. And so that's point one, the man. What was his mission? What was his mission? All four gospel writers include this mission of John's and they all quote from Isaiah 40. And so this is fulfilled in him. And so let's see it. This is just a little chunk that Matthew gives us. Luke gives us a further uh, verses three through five of Isaiah 40. But this is what Matthew writes. Talking about John. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John is the fulfillment of this prophecy, a road to knowing Yahweh, the road to, to Jesus, the Messiah, coming. And in those days and age, when a king was coming into an area, there would be a, one who precedes the coming to, to clear the path to make sure it was right, uh, straight and, and just without encumbrance. There was also this heralding to say, be ready. The king's coming. Be ready. Be ready. He's coming. Because people want to be like, man, they want to be there. They want to be just right in, uh, in the midst of that. And I was thinking about Isaiah 40 this, this week, because it's, it's been one of my favorite chapters for the past 20 plus years. And it, it goes back to a story when I was in my uh, middle to late 20s. I'd moved to Georgia to marry a girl. Our heart was pulled away. I was in a depressive, depressive spiral, and I was going to play music in, in Texas. And if you know anything about Texas, it's like a wilderness in many places. And so I was at this rest stop, just, just 
sad. I looked over at a, a, what was once a tree, but it had been cut down. It was just a stump. And internally, I just had this dialogue with the Lord. I said, Lord, that's me. I thought I was going to be this oak of righteousness, and I'm just that stump. And I felt the Lord kind of impress on my heart to walk over to the stump, and the stump had been hollowed out, just rotted out. In the middle of that stump was a little green shoot coming up. And I sensed the Lord speaking to my heart, like, I brought you low, Chad. What you thought was going to be your ministry, your life, your call, I've brought that low. But I'm doing a new work. And I did this. I don't recommend it necessarily, but I had a little Bible with me. And I did a little flop and drop. You ever heard of that? A lot of preachers who didn't like to prepare used to do this. They'd flop and drop and they go, okay, this is what we're preaching on today. Judas went and hanged himself. All right. Don't like that passage. Just try again. Go and do likewise. Oh, let's not do that one either. See, that's an old Baptist joke for you here today. But I did a flop and drop. Don't recommend it. Usually doesn't work out. In this moment, I, I just flopped and dropped my Bible, and it opened to Isaiah 40. And I looked at the first verse. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. And I had the sense, and I still have the sense today as a 44-year-old, that that was my calling and is my calling, to comfort God's people. And it gave me encouragement and strength to keep on the path. And the message that God has for us today is one of comfort. And the people who are hearing this message, that there's one preparing a way, they know the context of Isaiah 40. They know that the message of the one who's coming to prepare The way is comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem that her sin has been paid for. Comfort my people. So his mission was to comfort them, but it was also to bring about a sense of expectation that one greater than him was coming. And he has a unique role in the history of our world. There's only one John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. Throughout all the Old Testament, they were saying, one's coming, one's coming, one's coming. And John had the privilege of saying, he's here, he's here. Jesus, our Savior. The effects of this mission, although his message seems a bit veiled and it will be further revealed as we look throughout all of Matthew. Verse 5, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to see him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. And so the people are excited. It's believed that thousands of people were coming out to hear this message. And they were being affected by it. They're being comforted that God's at move. He hasn't left us. They're being comforted that there's a way forward that I don't have to just stay stuck like this in my sin. And we see that even his declaration is one of preparation. He says, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming who's going to baptize with spirit fire. And that illusion of the Holy Spirit coming upon the prophets of old, coming upon kings, and that the spirit transforms us from the inside out, the Holy Spirit. In the imagery of fire, that it's a purifying agent to, to get rid of the impurities, but that same fire, though it can rid us of impurities, for some it will be destruction. And so 400 years of silence, 
Many believe the Holy Spirit was gone, not coming back, but here he is. And so we get to the third point. And you might think this is the quickest sermon you've ever done, man. You're already at the third point. We're going to camp out. I just put up a mental tent behind me right here. But this is the message. And I want to give some context for the message because the rest of Matthew is going to be hitting this message week after week. And I want to spark our imaginations with it by God's grace. Message is simple, just like that text message, but it's pregnant with meaning and power. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The context, once again, is is so important. And I want us to think about what was the state of the people in this day and age? What had led up to this point? And as I was just thinking about John the Baptist and looking through Matthew, I got stuck in Matthew 11 for a while because that's when John the Baptist sends uh, his disciples to Jesus. We'll talk about that. And Jesus quotes from Malachi 3.1. Remember, this is the last book of the Old Testament within the prophets. And it, it, it just blew me away. I read through it several times. And it was just like, as a 44-year-old, I've studied Malachi before. I'm sure I wrote a paper on it sometime in seminary. Read it when I was 12 years old because I read through the Bible when I was 12. Not because I had to, but I was just anxious. And I just opened it up each morning and read But one of the principles we have is like, we're never going to plumb the depths of God's word. Each season of life, as we grow, 44, 55, 66, 77, 88, however long we live here on this earth, there's more to know of God in this book. Points to him, points to his heart, points to his ways. And I was really blown away by looking at Malachi and just the explicit nature and the grace of God to give this message Because after Malachi, there's 400 years of silence. But here comes the fulfillment. Malachi 3.1, the same thing that Jesus quotes. He says, I will send my messenger, so that's John, who will prepare a way before me. Now check this out. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. What is he? The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. The messenger of the covenant, the one whom you desire, the greatest longing of your heart, who you were created to be with and commune with for now and for all eternity will come, the one you desire. And in verse seven, ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. At the time Malachi's writing, the religious system had been reinstituted. We see in amazing books, Ezra and Nehemiah, they're able to go back and rebuild the temple. There's some reform that takes place, some revival as they're reading God's word and people are weeping because they're hearing a lot of these things for the first time and they're like, whoa, is, whoa, is me because I've I've not done any of this. We've, we've bailed on God. And it's cool because the, the Levites go around and explain the word to the people and they comfort them. And then the order from uh, Nehemiah from Ezra going forth is like, hey, there's a time for weeping, but this is a time for joy. Let's set up the, the festivals and let's, let's celebrate because God's brought us home. But it's not long after that that the religious leaders go right back to what the religious leaders of old did. 
and they're no longer shepherding the people and the people fall away into sin and they're not with God living in his ways. John declared his message loudly here 400 years later. And I read one guy this week, he said, there's three, three reasons to speak loudly. The first one is if someone's far away, they're distant. It's like, hey, hey. Another reason to speak loudly is when someone's deaf. You know, you got maybe grandpa and it's like, what's that, Sonny? And you just got to turn the TV down. And the other one is if someone's angry, sometimes coming in and speaking loudly is the way to disrupt that so that instruction can take place. And truth be known, as, as John is speaking, all three of these apply. The people are distant, they're far from God, they're deaf, they're slow to hear, and they're angry. And it reminds me of our day and age, doesn't it? And every day and age through human history. Apart from people submitting to God, they are distant, they're deaf, and they will be angry. And so this message is going forth, and, and what we want to think about is what does it even mean? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so our, our friend Jonathan Pennington, who's been preaching, he's finishing up a commentary. He's written other books on Matthew, but he's finished up a commentary for the Pillar series. He writes this, to repent means to reorient one's whole life, both the way of perceiving and the way of being in the world. While repentance can have a sense of regret, the primary function of this concept is an exhortation to change one's heart and behavior in ways that accord with God's will, God's nature, and coming kingdom. In other words, according to Matthew, to repent means two things, to follow Jesus as a disciple, so that's one aspect, and also to have a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees. And we're gonna get deeply into this as we look at the Sermon on the Mount and, and even the opposition the Pharisees and Sadducees give Jesus. But thinking about the repentance, a lot of times we do see that repentance and we think repent's a bad word and it's like, it's, it's essential, man. It's like you're going this way, you're hoarding yourself on this stuff that is worldly stuff, it's temporal. You're far from God and God's saying, hey, come back, return, turn, physically turn your heart towards me turn from this. It's not just leaving this. You have to be filled with something greater. And that filling is God himself. It's his kingdom. It's the agape love that he fills us with, that he loves us with. And that's the movement of Christian spirituality that we are first loved by God. He doesn't just come and say, hey, go love people, go love people. He's like, sit and remember my love shines upon you. I know you by name. I've chosen you. You're my child. And from that foundation, coming and saying, turn to me. And in this turning, it will affect every aspect of our lives when we are part of God's kingdom because we know that we want to live like Jesus. We want to image his heart. We want to say, Lord, the way you live life, transform me so that my heart is like you to be able to love my enemies so I can give my life away that I can find life. And this way does not lead to the peace that passes all understanding. This way does not lead to joy. This way does not lead to 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. It doesn't lead to any of that, but this way does. The fruit of the Spirit, relational connectivity, support in God's community. And to say this righteousness, this right way of living that God has invited us into, 
That is what our community is to be, to be built on. And we see this in Jesus's life. And I just want to say, like, what is the kingdom? What does it look like? And some of the times we just say it simply, like, the kingdom of God is where God's king and what he wants done gets done. And it does lead us to a flourishing soul, a flourishing life, better relationships, all of these things. It's where what God wants done gets done. And then it's the second question is, what's it look like? And uh, I grew up in church, born in the nursery, had a lot of Sunday school teachers, some good Sunday school teachers, had some that were, you know, in, in the old Baptist church, you go, bless your heart. You should probably be doing something else. So they were kind of boring. And maybe you stayed up too late and you'd fall asleep. And I think they were trained to ask you a question to shame you into listening again. But what they didn't realize is that even if you didn't hear the question, 93% of the time you're going to be right because you're going to answer what? It's Jesus, right? So you'd be like, Chad, what's the answer? Uh, Jesus. Ah, oh, I didn't get him again. That kid's smart. He's probably going to be a pastor one day. What's the kingdom look like? It looks like Jesus. When we look at the, what he taught, when we look at the way he interacted with people, when we look at, it's, it's, that's the kingdom in action. He doesn't do anything apart what the Father says. He's filled with the Spirit. He's led. He doesn't get caught up in the chaos of the world. He doesn't fall under peer pressure, all these things. And as I've looked at the life of Jesus, I'm convinced that the movement of Jesus in his ministry, other than with the Pharisees, this group that was called to shepherd the people, with everyone else, with the tax collectors, with the prostitutes, with those drunkards, with all these people who are broken and needy, is that he always came with mercy first. He always came with mercy. And then he came with invitations. And then he'd give challenges. And we see this, and I, I just continue to be blown away thinking like, how awesome must our God be if Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully human, is on the earth and the people that are flocking to him are the drunkards and the prostitutes and the tax collectors, all those who are broken and needy. What kind of heart must our God have? They're like, you got to come see Jesus. And then they're in his presence and they're welcomed and embraced, and he invites them, and he does challenge them. Leave this old way of life. That's chump change. It's going to hurt your heart. Diminishes your soul. Come to me. Find life. And he comes like this. We see it in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, when he's, it's an amazing invitation. He says, come to me. You tired, you weary, carrying heavy burdens? Come. What's he going to give? Rest. Sounds like Isaiah 40, doesn't it? Comfort. Comfort my people. And then what's he say? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learning is being apprenticed to Jesus. We're his disciples and we say, Jesus, I, I want to live more like you. Help me be a better dad. Lord, I, I want to sit. Help me understand more the movement of my soul in this situation. I get in the word and I say, Lord, this exposes this in my heart. Teach me how to love better. Teach, teach me. 
And it's this ongoing relationship day by day by day. And the, just the definition of his heart, he says, for I am gentle and humble in heart. That's our God. Created everything. All-powerful, sovereign creator. Gentle and humble of heart. It's better than we can imagine. This is the kingdom that we're invited to. To come, to learn, to live into this righteousness. And we see this kingdom is in direct opposition to the kingdom of the world, the domain of darkness, the fallen world. And they're going to come in opposition over and over and over again throughout Matthew. They come in opposition in our day and age. And if you want to prompt someone just to to give you opposition, you, you can poke around their kingdom, what's most important to them. You can challenge their kingdom. In a few weeks, we're looking at, at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And the best the world has to offer, Satan says, I'll give you earthly power if you bow down. I'll give you earthly possessions. I'll give you earthly popularity. And she's like, no way, dude. He actually quotes from Deuteronomy, but that's my translation. No way, dude. I love, I serve God. He's victorious time and time again. And he points to this kingdom. And for us who know our need, this is a message of comfort. This is a message of hope. This is a message that will anchor our lives today and lead us home. But this same message, message didn't change, same message to the religious leaders was not good news. And that's how Matthew ends this account with John the Baptist's speech here. Listen to what he says. He says, and this seems harsh. We've already heard it, and I know you've heard it. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? But even in this rebuke, there's an invitation. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to, your, to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up Abraham, um, to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And we see through the life and ministry of Jesus, there's going to be a lot of opposition in this very realm. And we do know, as the story goes on, some religious leaders do embrace Christ, but many do not. For the last 10 years or so here at Sojourn, I've, uh, Midtown and now here at East, I've led up what we call elder exploration or elder training process. And as the years have gone by, it's been one of the most uh, beneficial things for my soul, because I get so encouraged by being with uh, people who are called to be pastor and we dialogue. But as I continue just to think through God's heart, I, I continue to ask, Lord, what is your heart for shepherds to be? What's your heart for your people to receive from you? And over and over again, it's, it's like seeing more and more of the, the desires and the passions of God for his people to be led for his people to be fed and his people to be cared for. 
And I look through Ezekiel 34, I've done it a number of times. You look at the rebukes. If you put the opposite, you get God's heart. And it's like, man, care for my people. Seek after those who are lost. Take care of those in need. Bind up the brokenhearted. That's, that's God's heart. And all too often in Israel's history, and in the last 2,000 years in the church, this has been true in many times where the shepherds, the very ones who are called to be messengers of God, his good news, his comfort, have abused their power and authority and hurt the very ones they were called to care for. And jumping back to Malachi again, I was blown away by this, because this same indictment, 400 years before John the Baptist preached his message, applied to the religious leaders of John's day. Listen, listen as you hear this, just say, Lord, show me your heart. Malachi 2.4 says, so shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of what? This is God's heart, his desires. One of life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. And that's God's heart when it's working rightly. But unfortunately, this is what happens. But you have turned aside from my way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrected, corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And I will make you despise and abase before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction, showing favoritism. You're doing all sorts of things that aren't my ways. And this is what is true in John's day. And you can see the harshness of the rebuke from John. We'll see the harshness of Jesus's words to them, and it's for good reason. They have led God's people astray. They were the very representatives of God, and they gave people bad pictures over and over and over again. So this invitation to kingdom live and applying it to our lives. I told you earlier, I got stuck on Matthew 11 along with Malachi, but it's a scene where John the Baptist is imprisoned. Uh, he doesn't know if he's about to die or what's going on, but he sends disciples to Jesus and, and says, um, are you the one to come, Jesus, or is there one, one after? So he's, he's got some doubts going on, it seems. And you might see, you might expect to see Jesus's reaction as a rebuke, to be like, hey, go tell John like, I am the one. Have more faith. Go. That's not Jesus with those in his kingdom. What's he do? Mercy, invitation, and challenge, right? He lovingly says this. Quotes from Isaiah 35 and 61. He says, the blind see. Tell John the blind see. Tell John the lame walk. Tell John the good news is preached to the poor. Tell John. And in that, quoting from that prophecy, they go back. And then these are the words of Jesus. 
And, and I think the, the point, too, about John's doubts, it's, it's not that John doubts. We all doubt. It's not that you doubt or have questions, but it, what do you do with those doubts or questions? In the kingdom, we take them to Jesus, and he receives us. We take them to safe community, and we flush them out. That's what the kingdom is about. Matthew says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. It's a pretty high accolade, isn't it? Didn't he just doubt Jesus? It's like, yeah, he's great. And then this statement, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And many explain this, which is true, the saying that the culmination of Jesus' ministry, life, death, and resurrection, Holy Spirit coming, like the things that are gonna go forth in the kingdom are gonna be mind-blowing. But I also think in my mind, in just holy imagination, that thinking about the widow giving the pennies and Jesus saying, guys, she gave more than everybody else. And they're like, she gave pennies. They gave tons of money over there. And he says, she gave out of her little. They gave out of their surplus. That in the kingdom, things are flipped upside down. He doesn't forget a glass of water offered to it in his name. To the least of these, when we show love, we have done it to Jesus. God sees us praying in private. He sees the longings of our hearts. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with these longings that we don't even, we can't even understand. The groanings that come forth when we say, Lord, I surrender to you and I want to be more like you and I want to seek your face and I get so caught up in these other things. Help change my heart. And that is the kingdom. And so I think about our invitation. When we think about what is reality, reality is God's kingdom. It's eternal. All this is going to pass away. His kingdom is reality. It's more real than the air we breathe right now. It will never pass away. Who is blessed and who has a good life? It's the one who's alive in the kingdom. And how do we grow in the kingdom? We look to Jesus. We learn from him. We keep in step with the Spirit. It says, Lord, I surrender today. The world says, grab onto, hold. I've got the keys to my own kingdom. I'm building my own kingdom. And God's saying, that's chump change. Lay it down. Come to me over and over again. Turn to me. Give me the keys. Give me the keys. This is where you'll find life. Because I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, man, we're so thankful that you're here. Encourage you, open up some dialogue with us about what it means to be a Christian, these claims, things that you may think sound bizarre and off the wall. We love to talk about those things. Low pressure, it's just let's, let's dialogue. And see if the claims of Christ will add up, and they do. C.S. Lewis put it like this, and this is, I think it's so beautiful, when asked about why he became a Christian, because he was against Christianity, didn't believe in any of it. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And as we think about the kingdom, we see the sun has risen, and through it we can see everything else. 
We can see that there's a purpose for our suffering. We see that there's a purpose for all, all that God brings, brings in our life. We may not know exact details, but we can trust. We can trust. And if you are a Christian here today, you're part of God's kingdom. And my question to you is the same thing I've been thinking about this week for myself. What areas of your life are you holding back from this kingdom reality? Where, where, are you, where do you have some, some corners where the Holy Spirit, maybe in the, even in this moment and through the rest of the service, is, is prompting you saying, hey, you haven't turned over rain in this area. And I want all of you. I, you're all mine, but I want all, every aspect of you. Surrendering can be painful, but it's liberating. And to say, Lord, I want to follow you and obey. So the question I have, even as we come to communion, is what is God inviting you to? Through all these words and trying to put together these things, the Holy Spirit's at work in our hearts, and his invitation is to listen. Still small voice, what is he inviting you to? And then take that and take a step of obedience before this very day ends. There's a lot of times I do counseling and I see people, they get awakened. I've seen this in my own life where something rings so true and I don't act on it. And the next day it's like it just kind of dissipates like fog into the air. It's like, ah, oh, that seemed important yesterday. But today, embrace the invitation. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus lovingly sets up this sign of the new covenant. With his closest friends, he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he takes a cup of wine, says, this is the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. The new covenant sealed, can't be broken. This is why I've come, to bring life. He paid for our sins, and as we partake in this meal in this new kingdom, this really is a kingdom meal. In the new heavens and new earth, we're gonna feast together too, but we practice here remembering all that Christ has done, remembering what he's doing right now, having eyes to see, and remembering what he promises to do, because he is gonna come again. And here our tradition is to break off a piece of the bread, dip it into the juice or wine, whatever your conscience permits, and be reminded he comes with mercy, he comes with invitations, and he comes with challenges. What's that look like for you today? If you're not a Christian, the scriptures say don't partake in communion, but we'd love to talk to you about what it means and continue to discuss what Christ has done for us. Let's pray together.